Hi, is Barbara ready? I think you have time for a bite. Your kitchen is thick and rich. Doesn't your mom buy you Heinz? No. Why? Just taste it. Rich Heinz ketchup, the taste that's worth the wait. Was Heinz really worth the wait? I mean, really? The funny thing about that commercial is that Carly Simon wrote that song in 15 minutes while she was waiting for Cat Stevens to pick her up from a date for a date. And then he, get it? He's waiting for his date? Right. It's so hard to wait, and we get so impatient, and our impatience leads to things like this. Just think what you could do with all that thick, rich Heinz ketchup in this supremely squeezable bottle. Here comes the one. We're so impatient. When did we get so impatient? According to these two commercials, it was between 1977 and 1984. And everything Heinz comes in a squeeze bottle. I went to the store to look for a glass bottle and, um, of ketchup, and the only thing that came in a glass bottle was Heinz ketchup, or cocktail sauce. So apparently, cocktail sauce is worth the wait, but none of the other things are, and we just want it as fast as we can. We are so impatient, and our world and the world that we live shows our impatience. Some of us will pull a cup of coffee out of the carafe before it's done brewing. I know that some of you think that there's a lot of things wrong with what I just said because you might be a French press person or the pour-over person, right? We don't wait for our toast to get done. I know you think that you're checking to see if it's burnt, but actually you're in a hurry. We may not have the patience to wait for it to toast all the way. How about this one? Painting your nails before you go to bed and then waking up with sheet imprints. It's not a fashion symbol. It's a sign of impatience is what that is. We are impatient for so many things. We do not like to wait. We use the microwave to cook entire meals. We drive through the drive-through at a fast food restaurant because we're not patient enough to walk into the fast food place to get our fast food. Because it's much faster to go through the drive-through. We're so impatient. We just do not like to wait. And there's so many things around us that prove that point. I'm not really sure that Abraham and Sarah were real patient, given the fact that they used Sarah's servant to have their first child. Do you remember that from last week? They started to doubt whether or not God would deliver on his promise of a son for the two of them. Waiting is really hard, but this morning we're going to look at how anticipation of something better is what helped Abraham's family to persevere. In your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 11, page 1008, if you're in a blue Bible, we're starting at verse... 13 of chapter 8 or 11. These all died in faith, 
not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. So the these all is talking about Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob. They died in faith, receiving, not receiving the promises that God had made. Abraham and Sarah did eventually get the son that God had promised the two of them, but they died before they saw the formation of the multitude of nations with their descendants, and they died before seeing any of them gain control of the promised land of Canaan. Abraham's family died in faith because they lived in faith. They died believing that God would fulfill all of the promises that he had made to them. Abraham's family is being used by the writer of Hebrews to be an example and encouragement to those in the first century church. Abraham and his family, remember, they were following Yahweh. They did not have the vision or the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that the first century church did. So using Abraham and his family was pointing to the faith that he had in God before Jesus was part of what we could have our faith in. He says, having seen them and greeted them from afar, they could imagine these promises. They carried with them a vision in their minds of what these promises would look like, what they would be like. And we carry visions in our minds all the time, some of us more than ever, others. I'm a visual learner. I, I think visually. I like to picture things. And we look forward to so many things in our life. When we're kids, we look forward to going to kindergarten. When we are 12, we look forward to being 13 because we're finally teenagers. When we're 16, we look forward to that because we can drive. When we're 18, we look forward to that because we're going to graduate and then we're going to move on and start adulting. When we're 21, we'll skip that. And then after you're in college, you dream about the first job that you have. You dream about getting married. Tip, free. Don't mess with a bride's vision of what her wedding should be like. We imagine having kids and being parents, and then we also imagine what it will be like to have an empty nest. I've been told that an empty nest, the empty nest is probably one of the hardest stages of life to get through. It's a real struggle, but I don't know. I think those people that say that didn't have enough kids. <laughs> because when you've had four kids and you've been parenting for a really longer than average time and they slowly trickle out two years at a time, I don't know. I think that I think Steve and I could be the exception to that. <laughs> but we have five years. I'll let you know how that goes. It's these visions, the anticipation that motivate us, that encourage us, that give us hope to move forward and experience what is to come. Anticipation can be really helpful in getting us through hard times as well. Winters in Minnesota get really long. So we look forward to the anticipation of maybe a spring break vacation, the changing of the season, the garden that we're planning, the spring flowers that are going to bloom, or maybe we look forward to mowing grass, fishing on water versus ice, skiing on water versus snow. 
The anticipation of waiting for a baby after a miserable pregnancy brings hope. The anticipation of a sabbatical after postponing it for a year and a half due to a, a pandemic brings hope for restoration. Anticipation is hope in what is to come. It was anticipation of the promises that gave Abraham and his family hope for their future. They believed with all of their being that the city with its foundations designed and built by God was truly their future. It was the anticipation of something better that sustained them. What, Abraham and what Abraham's family anticipated was also expressed in how they lived. Let's take a look at verse number 14 again. It says, For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They lived in exile. They lived in stra as strangers on earth. Last week we talked about them being sojourners, having a temporary residence. Exiles are people who live away from their native country, either by choice or by force. And we've seen examples of this over the last two weeks. If you're a stranger in a foreign land, living in exile or sojourning, you don't have a permanent home. If you don't have a permanent home, you're looking for one. We are looking for a place to call home. Not necessarily a physical home like a house, but that place that you feel like you belong, where you are welcome, where you are loved, where you are cared for, where your humanity is respected and protected. Not all homes are safe when we know that. Too many people have homes where they are abused, neglected, and it's not safe. If you or somebody that you know is not safe in your home, please tell somebody. Please tell somebody. Because there are resources, there is help, there is hope that is available. Abraham and his family identified themselves as exiles because they had faith in God. They believed that he prepared a heavenly home for them. And that's what they anticipated. It's what they looked forward to. It's what they lived towards. Verse 14 says, For people that speak thus make it clear. This points to something that would be an identifying or a distinguishing type of thing that people of faith would have. Abraham's family communicated through their actions, living in exile, that they were followers of Yahweh. They believed in the promises that he had made. This was an identifying type of trait, a distinguishing quality or characteristic about them. It's like a character trait. It's not a symbol that's very different. A symbol would be something that shows identification or affiliation with something. Like the Nike brand on your shoes or your clothes is an identification of the brand. If you wear a uniform, it, it identifies an affiliation with a team or a certain job that you have. Some symbols identify status, depending, maybe we use the brand of clothes that we wear or the car that we drive to communicate status. A cross around your neck, tattooed somewhere on your body, 
hanging in your on your rear view mirror, which is illegal, by the way. Right, Paul? Yep, thanks. <laughs> or the bumper sticker on the back of your car that identifies you as a Christian. Those symbols might identify a Christian, but it's just a symbol of affiliation. A character trait is something in our behavior, something in our attitude, something in how we live that it distinguishes us from others. The fact that Abraham and his family identified as exiles and lived as exiles by choice, it matters. They didn't carry a symbol or wear a symbol with them. They lived as exiles because they were anticipating the heavenly home that God had prepared for them. How they lived mattered. How they lived identified their faith in God and his promises. As Christians, how we live matters. How we treat each other matters. What is important to us matters. What our priorities are matter. And I'm not talking about living this perfect life living through some legalistic list of things to do and things to not do, the do's and don'ts. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about whether we live, how we live reflects our faith. Does how we live distinguish us from others? Does how we live point to where we place our faith? Do we have a Christ in me, Christ through me type of posture? Do we love as Jesus loves? Do others see the grace of God in us and how we treat people? Or do we live according to this temporal world with all of the temptations and distractions? Do we collect symbols and status and accomplishments? What do our schedules reveal about our priorities? It's easy to get caught up in all of these things of the world and these material objects. I'm guilty of it. For the first 17 years of my working career, I collected achievements, promotions, degrees, accolades, all of the things that this world told me that I needed in order to matter, in order to make a difference, in order to be somebody. Do we place our faith in the things of this world or is our faith like Abraham's family? Is it lived in anticipation of the promises to come? There's more we can learn from Abraham's family in verses 15 and 16. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Abraham's family didn't look back. They didn't wish for their old life again. It seems that perhaps the people of the first century church were tempted to look back, even tempted to go back to Judaism. It was their old way of life. It was before Jesus. These Christians may have been tempted to go back because it was familiar. It felt comfortable. 
it was what was the norm. Maybe accepting Jesus as their final sacrifice in this new covenant didn't feel like enough to actually secure the forgiveness of their sins. The sacrifices of the old covenant were tangible, they were comfortable, they were action, and maybe they allowed them to feel like they had more control. They may have been scared. Christians were persecuted. Being, be, going back to Judaism would have been much easier for them, and it actually would have been safer for them. Do you know somebody that likes to go back, reminisce, look back all the time? Somebody that is constantly reminding you and telling you the same story about that touchdown or that goal they scored 25 years ago, right? Or maybe somebody that is constantly telling you about all of the accomplishments that they had back then. It's sad. What does it say about their life right now? And what does it say about their future? What are they anticipating? What do they have to look forward to? What are they, how are they living right now? It's like their best life is behind them. And I thought about, in response to this live your best life hashtag, theirs would be hashtag my life, my best life is behind me. It's tempting to go back. We long for what felt comfortable behind us. Even in the pandemic, we long for things to get back to normal. And it probably won't look exactly like it did. Our lives, our world, probably won't look exactly like it did pre-pandemic, pre-COVID. But we long for that because it's comfortable and things might not be very comfortable right now. They might be harder. There's actually a live your best life phrase that was trademarked by Oprah in 2013. And she actually published a book and held events called Live Your Best Life. I don't know if she held the conferences or the co events. She probably showed up. Her people probably coordinated those for her. And they probably had that phrase trademarked as well. How should one determine what their best life actually would be? What would the criteria be? And how do you even go about achieving it? According to Oprah, you obtain these things. Self-growth, reaching new heights, and finding meaning. If that's the criteria, did Abraham's family live their best life while they were living in exile? It depends on the criteria, right? So what if, instead of self-growth, it was spiritual growth? What if a criteria, instead of being reaching new heights, was finding hope in what is to come? What if, instead of finding meaning, was actually finding your identity in Christ? If finding our identity in Christ, spiritual growth, and hope in the promises that are to come is to the way to live our best life, then what distinguishes us, what traits distinguish us, what would identify us as followers of Christ?
what distinguishing characteristic would people see? Perhaps it would be respecting and protecting everybody's humanity. Maybe it would be treating every human as your neighbor, loving them as we are commanded. Maybe somebody would see the hope and the light of Jesus in you and through you. They could experience Jesus. Maybe somebody would say, I see Jesus in you. Maybe seeing mothers and children fleeing their homes, leaving the men that they love behind to defend their country, would break our hearts. If our eyes are fixed on the hope and the promises of Jesus, people inside this space and outside this space, Timberwood Church, inside and outside, should see it in the way we live. The greatest desire of Abraham's family was to live in the presence of God. They lived a life that showed that their desire for God was greater than any of the material things that they could have had on this earth. Is our desire to follow Jesus, moving forward, anticipating the promises, does that inform how we live? Does our life have distinguishing characteristics that tell people who we are or whose we are? These are the reasons that God was not ashamed to call him, call them, sorry. These are the reasons that God was not ashamed to be called their God. God was proud. God was happy. They were fulfilling. They were doing what he asked them to do. He was proud to be their God. They seeked God first. We have blue bracelets at the information desk, blue silicone bracelets, they say God first. Seek God first in all things. Do we seek God first? Does that priority is that priority communicated through our life, through our priorities, through our actions, through our relationships? These verses should be encouraging to us. They were encouraging to the first century church. We have Jesus. We know that Jesus lived, died, and was resurrected for our sin, our forgiveness. And we have a future with him. God has prepared a heavenly home for us. The same heavenly home that he prepared for Abraham and Sarah and their family and the Christians of the first century. Abraham's family was, fo was focused forward, living in light of the promises of God, the kingdom of God is here. We're living in the kingdom of God, but it's also yet to come. There's another part of it that is still coming. We anticipate what is next for us. As followers of Christ, we have the gift of looking forward, anticipating, having the hope of Jesus and what is to come. Living in anticipation of what is still to come is living with faith in a God that we believe will keep his promises. Living in faith is believing in a God that will keep his promises. Let's pray.
Father, I can't imagine a world to live in that doesn't have the promises that you have given, the hope that comes with those promises. Lord, I pray that we would all base our life, orient our life, ground ourselves in the hope that you have given us. I pray that as we go out in the communities and we're interacting with other people, I pray that people would see in our lives and how we live the priority that we have in keeping you first. I pray that we seek you first. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you that he died once and for all, was the final sacrifice in the new covenant. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to live with that gift, live in the peace, and live in the hope of what that means, the hope in having a future in that heavenly place that you have prepared for all of us. We love you and honor you. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.